on Civil War Talk Radio. We'll restart the Civil War time machine and find out where he would go in the 1860s. Have you let your website go stale? Wish you didn't have to wait for your web developer. Have you let your website go stale? Wish you didn't have to wait for your web developer to return your call when you want to update content? You don't have to. Now you can easily and instantly manage your own website content using affordable Avalar technology. Avalar is a website development and hosting company that provides turnkey internet solutions for companies like yours that need to stay focused on core business. Avalar gives you the power to control your website and make updates and additions in real time without having to learn HTML or other complicated programming tools. Websites powered by Avalar feature capabilities that attract more customers and enhance relationships with existing customers. Avalar offers a multitude of leading-edge solutions, including lead generation and referral tracking, shopping carts and payment processing, membership management, and search engine optimization, to name a few. Take advantage of the full power of the Internet using Avalar technology at www.avalar.com. That's A-V-A-L-A-R. Vitality is a natural expression of health, success, and fulfillment, and yet it's rare to meet people bubbling with vitality. That's because most of us push ourselves too hard, and when we trigger the internal alarms that tell us to change our diets, attitudes, or activities, we ignore them. Allowing outside pressures to override our internal alarms undermines our health, sabotages our success, and limits our potential. If you're ready to reclaim your natural vitality, to begin living a life you love, visit thevitalyou.com. You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. To speak with our show hosts or guests during the live show, call us toll-free in North America, 888-514-2100. Everywhere else, call 001-858-268-3068. Exaggerated there a little bit, uh, but it may seem well. I'm not done now. yet. <laughs> no, there, there's there's a few more to go yet. Tell me, um, we've talked about writing about the Civil War. Let me ask you about the war itself. If you could indeed travel back in time, you've written biographies of Jefferson Davis, of Breckinridge, of others. Who, what one person would you want to meet if you could go back and spend an hour? Uh, I think probably Breckinridge, actually. If not, if not Breckinridge, uh, then Lincoln. Well, tell us a little bit about Breckinridge. Uh, he's a. You know, my whole career is the result of an editorial error. Uh, when I was, as I mentioned at the beginning, I was um, got interested originally in the Civil War because I was trying to find out about my ancestors, and I, I had a Virginia ancestor who was in the 45th Virginia Infantry, and I ran through a still classic set of works called Battles and Leaders of the Civil War. I'm sure you know it well. Absolutely. Uh, compiled in the 1880s from articles that appeared in Century Magazine. And when it was reformatted into this four-volume set, they added what are called orders of battle, that is, uh, uh, listings of the regiments and their commanders engaged in various battles. 
And I looked for anything on the 45th Virginia, and lo and behold, it showed up in, in Breckenridge's small army that he commanded at the Battle of Newmarket. And I then read a little about him and got fascinated by how this guy who had been the youngest vice president in our history, and the youngest we'll ever have almost certainly, because uh, he was just 35 when he was elected, uh, and who'd been a presidential candidate against Lincoln, how can he become seemingly the ultimate traitor by, by becoming a Confederate general? So I went off and wrote this big, fat book on him. He, he was vice president under... Under Buchanan. Yes. And then I later found out that the editors of, uh, of uh, Battles of the Years were full of it. The 45th Virginia was nowhere near the Battle of Newmarket. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I wrote an article on Breckenridge that got led to that job in publishing that sort of led to my whole career, and then it turns out it was an editorial mistake that started it all. <laughs> well, it's like the Bixby letter, uh, yeah, yeah. Lincoln's famous letter about the five sons who died. Yeah. They weren't really five sons. Right. Uh, they didn't all die, but... But it's Bre still a great letter. Yeah, but Breckinridge turned out to be a, a fascinating character. He was this Kentuckian who, like all Kentuckians, or so many, was was torn between uh, familial loyalties to the South and political loyalties to to the Union. He was one of those people who, no matter what he did, no matter which choice he made, he was going to lose because he had to lose something. Uh, he was just by all accounts, very handsome, very uh, uh, engaging character who wasn't, he was neither very doctrinaire toward the political right in those days or toward the political left. He was a centrist and uh, this enormously popular. He president, vice president, and everybody said this guy one day will be president, then he becomes a Confederate general with no military experience, yet turns out to be, by natural aptitude, a very good mid-level commander and winds up at the end of the war as Secretary of War, in which he chiefly tries to bring about the end of the war and a Confederate surrender on honorable terms, and then spends his last few years working for reconciliation between North and South. He's a, he's a character who's almost too good to be true, yet he's representative of many people like him. So I, I got very interested in him. And I... I I, I still would. There's questions I'd still like to have answers to. I once had a dream in which I was on a train riding seated, seated next to Mark Twain. And, uh, and I said, Mr. Twain, I'm a writer too, as it happens. Perhaps you've heard of me. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it turned out in the dream that Twain knew Breckenridge very well, and Twain knew the answers to all the questions I had for Breckenridge that I'd never found answers to. <laughs> what can, can you remember any of the questions? You know, I think I was most curious about Breckenridge's true feelings about slavery because he was kind of ambivalent. And, uh, I, you know, it's so long ago, that's 30 years ago, I can't remember any more of it now. But he certainly would be interesting. Uh, how could anyone not want at least to uh, to speak with Lincoln and get some feeling for uh, that still enigmatic character? And personally, one of my favorites is Grant, U.S. Grant. Uh, a, you know, a guy who saw right down to the bottom of himself until he failed at everything until he found the one thing he did well and he did it better than anybody else. And then when he was done with that, he went right back to failure again. Uh, and, but then he finishes on a high note with his memoirs, exactly, He's which are writer. so brilliantly written. He is a great writer, as so many military men were, I think, because they had to achieve clarity in their orders and instructions while they were military men that, that they often understood how to write well afterward. The ones who were not very good generals uh, wrote books that were far too long. Look at Beauregard's memoirs and Johnston's memoirs and Longstreet's. Now, uh, Breckinridge as a general, just getting back to, to that 
very interesting character. As I recall, at Stones River, he led a charge that uh, had it ha- happened in the Eastern Theater might be remembered the way Pickett's charge is remembered. It was, yeah, it was nowhere near the size of Pickett's charge. I've, it's, I've forgotten now. I think the Longstreet's assault or Pickett's charge had about 12,000 men involved. The Breckenridge's mm-hmm. was about 4,500, if I'm remembering correctly. But it was almost equally hopeless. He had opposed making the assault, but his army commander, Braxton Bragg, gave him a peremptory order, uh, and the, uh, the, the assault uh, just eviscerated uh, several of his units. He lost a number of good commanders in it, and it, it of course, achieved nothing. Uh, but as you're quite right, it was, it was in the wrong, it was in the theater of the war where the newspaper reporters weren't. Right, and so today it's, it's a footnote to history yeah, yeah. instead of something every, every student knows about. Well, if Breckinridge was, a, as you said, he was a good mid-level commander uh, with small independent commands who certainly did well, uh, who, were the, who were the great commanders of the war? Well, I think there's no question. Grant is, in my view, the great commander of the war in terms of, of using everything available to him and using the full powers of his position. Uh, Lee certainly is as well, but we don't. But Lee never operated on a continental scale, so we don't know if he could have performed as well as Grant. I have no reason to suppose he wouldn't have. Um, Grant's you know, Sherman is a very able commander, though he's quirky and erratic, and without somebody like Grant to keep him stable, he's he's not that good without direction. In the Confederacy, alas, for them, Lee's really the only great army commander they had. All the others are, are very, very poor second. But you don't think Joe Johnston was uh, I think he well-suited? Was, he was deplorable. Really? <laughs> yeah, he's a... Johnston never understood, like like Beauregard, I think, the role of an army commander in a civil democracy. That is, he is subordinate to the civil authority and has a responsibility to cooperate with and to report to his civil commander. Johnston refused to communicate to his president, who as commander-in-chief had every right to expect communication from Johnston, that Johnston would have ideas and plans and would share them. Uh, for you know, throughout eighteen you know, when, in eighteen sixty two, when before Johnson's wounded and he's in command down on the peninsula, the only way Jefferson Davis can find out what's going on from Johnson is to ride himself down to meet the army. And the only way he knew that the army was retreating toward Richmond is that every day his ride was a little shorter than, <laughs> than the day before. And the same thing happens in eighteen sixty four in, in Georgia. Johnston repeatedly refuses to tell Davis what he intends to do. And I think it's because he doesn't intend to do anything. Johnson's a man who lacked moral courage. He had tremendous physical courage, but morally he he did not have the courage to use the responsibility he had. And then tries to make up for it by writing the greatest novel of the Civil War, his memoirs, uh-huh. which is about a 400-page lie, uh, which, you know, it's kind of, I had this secret plan all along, and I was ready to spring it on the Yankees just at the moment that Davis relieved me from command or, all that uh, Johnson, I think, is a deplorable fellow who just did not have the, the the character equipment to be an army commander. When you look at the general officers, the field full rank field generals commanding armies in the Confederacy, a very telling fact is if you look at tally up the number of offensives that they planned and at least set in motion, the Next most aggressive commander to Robert E. Lee is Braxton Bragg. Hmm. 
And Bragg does not get a lot of good press. No, he doesn't, and, and deservedly so. He at least would make plans, and he would start campaigns. They just fell apart because he couldn't manage them and because he had these these awful uh, problems of personality and character himself that he was you know, spent more of his time fighting his own generals than he did the enemy. But Bragg at least had the guts to start. Uh, Beauregard, Johnston, Kirby, Smith, none of the others have the courage even to launch campaigns. Hmm. Now, how about on the Union side? Who who uh, gets the booby prize there? Uh, you, you mentioned oh. Grant Sherman at the top, uh, among, among major leaders. Well, to, to offend some old friends of mine, I'm sick and tired of hero worship of George Thomas. Ah, well, <laughs> now we're getting somewhere, because if you're going to bash McClellan, everybody just yawns and goes, okay. He's an easy target. But but Thomas has many, many supporters. He uh, make him one of the great generals of the war. And there's there's no question that, that, that Thomas is an able man, but it, it Part of the reason he got the name Rocket Chickamauga is that he'd, he'd been in a panic earlier that day, and he and others are so over-exaggerating the dangers to the center of the Union line that they're, or to their, to, to Thomas's flank, that their result in pulling units out of the Union center just as the Confederates were attacking it, and earlier in that campaign as well, the, you know, the Rock of Chickamauga really kind of has feet of clay. Uh, again. When uh, when Grant arrives and takes command in Chattanooga, following that time, Thomas is simply slow and lethargic, and you know it's everybody knows how long it took him actually to do something in the Franklin Nashville campaign before he finally got off his uh, swivel chair. Yeah. Uh, there's no, I mean, he was much has been made about he wins the most complete victory of the war in this, in this battle of Nashville that destroys an army. But uh, be good. Well, you know, McClellan could have destroyed John Bell Hood's army at that point. It's so outclassed, so outnumbered, so undersupplied, so exhausted, and it's commanded by Hood. Who is this, himself? This is, not, this is not a great achievement. Now, you're saying that it's sitting. It's, it's been teed up, and anybody can yeah, knock it. Well, how about uh, Johnston and Thomas are people with good reputations that you you think are undeserved? How about the other direction? Is there anyone? Who ne- never gets the credit they deserve? Uh, if so, it would be you know, people like E.R.S. Canby, the Union Army commander, whom nobody's even heard of, who in fact accepts not one but two surrenders of Confederate armies at the end of the war, and he's later killed out in the uh, Indian fighting in the far west. Canby's a very, very able guy. Uh, Henry Slocum, for a time, an Army commander in the Union. Again, another very able fellow. Among Confederates, uh, A.P. Stewart, Alexander Stewart, who never rose above Corps Command. And William J. Hardee was, I think, probably better than he's gotten credit for being, but he never got the Army Command chance to, to show what he might have achieved. Wow. Well, I, I, I wish we had time to go in, into more depth on these. These are some interesting uh, thoughts about people, again, that most of us haven't read a great deal about. Uh, but unfortunately, we're at the end of our time, so I can only urge our listeners to read some of the many uh, wonderful works written by Jack Davis over the years, and we'll look forward to your future productions on the Civil War or other topics. <laughs> okay. Well, I've and enjoyed it, Jerry. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. We'll talk to you again soon, I hope. Okay. Bye now. This is Jerry Prokopovich at Civil War Talk Radio.